So as I was saying, when we look as Seventh-day Adventists at Revelation, oftentimes, usually, we look at it in a, in a fairly narrow sense, you know, what does this symbol mean in a prophetic way? Um, there's really a much broader way we can look at Revelation. I was talking to a friend of mine the other day, and we were discussing how Ellen White deals with, for example, the seven churches. She makes reference to the church of Ephesus in a historic context. She talks about the first, the church in Ephesus, Revelation 2, in verse 1 and following, and she talks about how Paul founded that church. But she also talks about the churches in Revelation 2 and 3 in a prophetic way, that they represent the church throughout um, successive time periods in history, ending, of course, with the last church, which is... Laodicea, which represents us today. But she also looks at the seven churches in, let's call it a spiritual or personal way. For example, the message to Ephesus, you have left your first love, applies to me as well. And so she looks at the text of Revelation with these three levels. So it's very important for us, particularly um, as Seventh-day Adventists, a movement of destiny to understand our prophetic foundations in Revelation. But I want to do something different this morning, this afternoon. And that is I want to look at Revelation, particularly Revelation 4 and 5, from the angle of what is the story John is trying to tell us. Now, I like Revelation as a story because we know how it ends, and it ends in a good way, Right? And I don't like stories that don't, don't end in a good way because, really, in God's plan, there is a final good ending. So we're going to look at Revelation, and I want to try to get our attention in terms of the setting, what's kind of the background in Revelation 4 and 5. Who are the characters? Um, who are the actors on the stage, if I can use that? Perhaps uncomfortable analogies. We read Revelation, and we see scenery, and then different individuals come on the scene. So what's the setting to Revelation 4 and 5? Who are the characters or actors? What are the main players that come to view? And what is the plot? What's happening in the storyline in these couple of chapters? And um, just in the very beginning, it's my argument, my contention, my belief, that rightly understood revelation in its largest sense is talking about the great controversy. And there's a great issue that needs to be resolved, not just for humanity's sake, but for the universe. And John, as he wrote revelation down, clearly John had a vision and he saw and he heard all the things that he wrote. But we understand from our conception of inspiration, that inspiration works on the person. And so, Isaiah writes differently than Ezekiel. David writes the Psalms differently than Solomon. And so there's this personality. And when John wrote the book of Revelation, really it's an amazing composition. Hardly any part of the book of Revelation is chosen in isolation from another part. So if I can maybe move away from the metaphor of stage scenery and actors and use the metaphor of a tapestry. And think of Revelation as a verbal tapestry. And that the words that John uses are verbal threads that connect the entire tapestry together. 
So that's what I want to explore this morning, is how John uses this imagery, what's the tapestry picture he's um, putting together, and what's the underlying story that John's trying to bring out. And so the question, again, how should we understand the setting, the characters, and the plot in Revelation 4 and 5? And again, let me just say that as we look at these two chapters together, within Seventh-day Adventism, there are different views concerning some of the details. I'm going to leave some of those detail questions aside, and if we get through everything and we have time for questions and answers, uh, we may look at some of those details um, in, in greater length. But you may have a question that comes to mind. Well, how does this fit? Just lay the question, write it down, hold it off to one side as we kind of go through this. So Revelation 4 and 5, I like to say another metaphor, that these two chapters form a literary diptych, a two-paneled picture, which provide the interpretive key to the book of Revelation. Revelation 4 and 5 really is the fountainhead of the entire book of Revelation. Why is that so? How do I say that? So we're Revelation 4 and 5. We have this heavenly scene. We have a scene with a book, the scroll. The scroll begins to get unfolded, which leads us to the seals, which leads us to the trumpets, which leads us to the opening of the sanctuary in Revelation 11. And all throughout the book of Revelation, John draws us back to Revelation 4 and 5. If you look carefully, the characters, the actors, in Revelation 4 and 5 continually reappear throughout the entire book. The setting continually reappears throughout the entire book. So how we approach these two chapters impacts the interpretation we put on on the entire book of Revelation. Uh, Got a visual illustration for you of a actual diptych. This is a from the, I forgot the year, if it was uh, Jan van Eck who wrote it. This is a picture of the crucifixion. And then the other half of this panel is a picture of judgment. So it's a two-paneled picture. It goes together. And that's what Revelation 4 and 5 are. There are two-paneled picture, if I can again use that expression. So let's turn, if you have your Bibles, to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation 4. And we're going to read through verses 1 through 6. And then we're just going to kind of ask some questions. I'm going to pose some ideas. And then we're going to come back and look a little deeper. And then step back and then look a little deeper throughout our time together. So Revelation 4, starting in verse 1. And I'm reading from the New American Standard. Revelation 4.1. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardis in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, 
which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. Then John continues and he describes these four, little creatures, four living creatures. We'll come back to that in a moment. Chapter 4, verse 1 starts with, after these things, after what things? After the seven churches. John has just seen the seven churches. And throughout the letters to the seven churches are encouragements. I know your deeds. I know your poverty, but you're really rich. Um, I know your situation. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. There are these encouragements, and there are also cautions. You have left your first love. There are some among you who follow the teaching of Balaam, teaching my people to eat things sacrificed to idols and commit acts of immorality. And within the seven churches are also appeals to be overcomer. To him that overcomes, I will grant uh, to eat some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a new name, a, new, a white stone rather, and a new name in the stone, which no one knows except he who receives it. So, you know, the seven churches are really dealing with situation here on earth. But now we switch, and where are we? We're in heaven. And we have this heavenly view. And um, that's one of the big themes in the book of Revelation, is that there's an earthly view and a heavenly view, an earthly perspective and a heavenly perspective. And so when John sees this heavenly perspective, our first reading of Revelation 4 and 5 is like, wow, we've been taken out of the turmoil of the world, and all of a sudden, we're in heaven. That would be a nice place to be, right? Yes or no? Amen. I mean, yeah, amen. Um, and so when we read that, we come to this conclusion. And I'm going to quote a few um, Bible writers, commentators. There's a man by the name of R.H. Charles. He wrote a well-known commentary at the beginning of the last century. And he said, when you come to Revelation 4 and 5, you have a movement from the failures, troubles, and darkness of this world into an atmosphere of perfect peace. You're leaving the turmoil of the seven churches, and now you're in this heavenly situation. Another writer, um, probably mispronounce his name, Laszlo Galuz, he's just re recently written a book called The Throne Motif in the Book of Revelation. Um, Seventh-day Adventist, he teaches in Bulgaria, I believe. And he says this vision, or the vision, shows that the indisputable supremacy of the heavenly power center so from his point of view, when you leave the chapters 2 and 3 and you move to heaven, this shows the indisputable supremacy of God's throne room or the power center in heaven. Mervyn Maxwell, in his book, God Cares, says this, when you make this shift from the seven churches to chapter 4 and 5, you find out that there really is someone upstairs who is in charge. Nice, friendly way that... Dr. Maxwell wrote his book, God Cares, which is a tremendous resource and has a lot of good thoughts in it. But is this correct? Is it really what John's trying to get across, that we're moving from earthly turmoil to heavenly peace? Well, the first time you read Revelation, it's quite natural to come across that. But the more we read Revelation, or as we become re-readers of Revelation 
what do we find about heaven? Something very important happened in heaven. What? There was a war in heaven. Now, we don't get that, you know, you don't learn that until you come down later into the book of Revelation. And so it's, it's quite natural as we, as we encounter chapter 4 and 5, where, yeah, okay, we've moved from the turmoil of earth, and, and now we're in heaven where everything is indisputable power, and God's in charge, and God ultimately is in charge. But we know, as we read through Revelation, that there's really a war that began in heaven. So another Bible commentator said this, in the context of the apocalypse, in the context of Revelation as a whole, it is clear that the problem facing the heavenly council is the rebellion of Satan, which is paralleled by rebellion on earth. In other words, instead of the opening scenes of chapter 4 and 5 simply being a, wow, we're away from the turmoil of earth, we're in this calm heavenly peace, really the larger backdrop in Revelation, as we'll see this morning, this afternoon, I hope we'll see this afternoon, really that the larger issue is that there is this conflict taking place, and that rebellion on heaven, excuse me, rebellion on earth has its source and origin in the rebellion in heaven. The turmoil on earth is a reflection of the situation that originated in heaven itself, in the heavenly council. Um, so let's see if we can decide which one of these two paths we should take as our larger framework. And so the first question for us this um, <clears throat> afternoon is, what's the setting for this vision? Okay, what's the setting? We just read Revelation 4, 1 through 6. We've seen a few things in here. We've seen um, something like a sea of glass. We've seen these living creatures. We've seen these 24 elders. We've seen a few other things. What is the setting of this vision? Okay, it's a throne room. The seat of God's kingdom. Again, throne room, that's good. What else? A larger setting in the passage. What's the time frame? Well, that's a really good question. I knew somebody was going to ask what's the time frame. Let's take that question and put it aside for now. Um, there's three short answers. One, it could be a timeless scene. Uh, it could be an ascension scene. It could be a judgment scene. Let's just lay that aside for a moment and think what's the setting here? It's taking place. Where are we? Well, we're in the throne room. What else? Okay, there's elders. Um, what kind of imagery do we have? Lampstands, sea of glass, sanctuary. We have a sanctuary setting. And of course, there's a question, well, where in the sanctuary are we? Is it the whole sanctuary? Is it the most holy place? Let's leave that question aside for a while as well, if you don't mind. So, but the setting, the backdrop here is clearly the throne room in heaven, the sanctuary. Whether the entire sanctuary or part of it, Let's leave that aside. But that's the background here as we enter into chapter 4 and 5. And this will become more important as we go through. So the next question is, what is the first thing John sees when he gets to heaven? It's the first thing he sees. What? Okay, he sees the open door. He goes into the open door. And the first thing he sees in heaven is? 
Okay, I've gotten two different answers here. What's the first thing he sees? The throne. The first thing John sees is the throne. So the question we naturally, he doesn't first see the one on the throne. He first sees the throne. And so then the question is, why is John's attention drawn to the throne? The throne is a very important article of furniture in the book of Revelation. It's used some 47 times in the book of Revelation, which is about a third of all the usage um, in the scriptures found in the book of Revelation. The throne is found 19 times in these two chapters. So just a real focus on the throne and what's taking place. And so, you know, we ask the question, okay, well, John, what's so important about the throne? Well, it depends on how we read the story, how we hear the story, how we look at the picture. It could be, okay, God's indisputable supremacy, as one of the other authors say. Or it could be that there's something about the throne. Now, if we think biblically, if we think in the book of Revelation, we learn a lot about the throne. For example, in Revelation itself, God has a throne. Well, 24 elders have a throne, so God has a throne. God's associates have a throne, which would ultimately include God's people. But someone else has a throne in Revelation as well. Turn with me Revelation chapter 2. Revelation 2 and verse 13, speaking to the church in Pergamon, it says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's what? Well, it depends on our translation. If we have the King James, it says seat. Actually, it's the same Greek word for the word throne, where Satan's throne is. So Satan has a throne. And in fact, Satan gives his throne to his associate. Revelation 13, where in verse 2 and 3, Satan gives his power and his throne and his great authority to his associate, the beast, the first beast of Revelation chapter 13. Babylon sits on a throne, Revelation 18. So the throne in the book of Revelation, it's important for us to understand, is contested territory. If we think of an Old Testament text on uh, the book of Isaiah, uh, Isaiah chapter 14, in verse 12, Satan wants to do what? He wants to set his throne above the stars of God. So the throne in Revelation, so we read, reread Revelation, and as we look below the surface and look at how John's communicating through his imagery that he draws, the throne is a place of contested territory. There's somebody that wants to take God's throne. And here we find over and over again, let's think a little bit more about the throne. Keep track of my time. Uh, we think more about the throne. If we think of the throne, what images, biblical images, come to mind as you think about the throne? What, what does the throne convey? Okay, a power, authority. Judgment, okay, anybody think of a Bible text that has throne, thrones and judgment? Daniel 7, verse? It's close. <laughs> Daniel 7? Daniel, you all have Bibles with you. You could look. It's an open book test. 
um, uh, where Old Testament images that, that picture the throne in relation to judgment. Daniel 7, verses 9 and 10. Ancient of days came, sat on a throne, the books were opened. So Daniel 7, 9 and 10 connects the throne with judgment. There are other Old Testament images in relation to the throne. If we think, for example, for the sanctuary, what article of furniture in the sanctuary is connected with the throne? The Ark of the Covenant. Um, turn with me to 2 Samuel. Let's just turn there. 2 Samuel, chapter 6. 2 Samuel, chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. And David gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. David arose and went with all the people who were with him to Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name Hashem, the very name of the Lord of hosts, who is, or I think the King James says, who sits, New American Standard says, who is enthroned above the cherubim. So in the sanctuary imagery, there's a direct connection between the ark and the throne. Yeah, there's a judgment imagery between the throne and judgment as well. There's another biblical thread uh, that we need to weave in here for a moment. And let's turn to 1 Kings chapter 22. 1 Kings 22. It's an interesting chapter. Uh, <clears throat> king of Israel is trying to get some guidance, and so he go, calls one of his prophets, and the prophet is a false prophet, and he tells him, just go to battle. And then he calls in the true prophet, Micaiah, and he doesn't prophesy what the king wants to hear, but notice what he says in verse 19. First Kings 22, verse 19. Micaiah said, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left. And then this story goes on, and uh, the prophet hears this conversation taking place where God on his throne says, well, who's going to go do such and so? Who's going to go be a deceiver? And one of the angelic beings standing there and says, well, I'll go do this. And then he goes and he does it. Let's leave aside the crest question as to uh, the appropriateness of the deception taking place. But let's just look at the setting. What's the setting here? Where is he? God's on his throne. And who's standing all around him? Who's around him? Host of heaven. Heavenly beings of some kind. This is a kind of a picture of a heavenly council of some kind. And so when we hear the word throne, there are three biblical threads that come together. There's the sanctuary, image of the ark. There's judgment taking place, Daniel 7. There's some kind of council meeting taking place in heaven. Oh, so we see the throne. It's a much bigger image. And we understand from the book of Isaiah, from the book of Ezekiel, that it was a member of that council that first decided he was going to overthrow God's throne. It was Lucifer. He was a member of that council, of the highest angel in that council, who decided, I want God's place. And so John right away starts up and he opens this picture. The first thing he shows us is the throne. 
So in Revelation, the throne is disputed territory. So that's a bit about the setting. Let's go back to Revelation 4 and 5 and look at some of the characters, for lack of a better word, actors, um, participants in the story that John outlines. Who are the members of the divine council that John sees? How does he describe them? So let's look at the first one. Who's the first, after he sees the throne, who's the first person he sees? Revelation chapter 4. Again, let's go back there. Revelation chapter 4 and verse 2. Who's the first one he sees? No, not first. He doesn't see the 24 elders first. He sees God first. How is he described? Revelation chapter 4 and verse 2. Okay, even before the Jasper and Stardust zone, I saw one sitting on the throne. That expression is used 13 times in the book of Revelation referring to the Father. Okay. It's used seven times in these two chapters and then six other places in slightly different forms. So this is one of John's favorite descriptions of the Father. Probably his favorite description. I saw one sitting on the throne. I saw him who sat on the throne. Over and over again, he uses this language to, to bring out this important aspect. And here's a list of the Bible verses if you're interested in, <clears throat> in jotting them down. So when he sees God, this is how he describes him primarily throughout the book of Revelation, when he sees the Father. There are some other titles as well. Uh, him who was and is and is to come, the Lord God Almighty. Those are all used about six or seven times in Revelation in slightly different forms. But this is the premier title for the Father, the one sitting on the throne. Remember, the throne is contested territory. It's not until Revelation chapter 11, uh, <clears throat> under the opening of the seventh seal, where it says that God has begun to reign. He's pictured on this throne, but he's not yet reigning yet in his fullest sense. Why? Because the throne is contested territory. There's someone that wants to overthrow him. Well, let's move on. Um, who's the next group of people that we see? Revelation 4 in verse 4. 4, 3 in yeah, verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. So the next group that's brought out here are these 24 elders. And of course, the first question we ask when we see the 24 elders is, who are they? Another question might be, what role do they play in the story? Because it's really not clear who they are. And different people have different opinions. Two main opinions are they're either resurrected people from this world, and there's some arguments for that. And other arguments would be, well, no, these are angelic beings of some sort. <clears throat> I'll give you a quote in a moment that might help us discern which one of those two paths is more accurate. But really, the bigger question is, what are they doing? Well, they're clothed in white. They've got crowns of gold on their head. And where do they sit? They sit on thrones. They're part of the 
ruling body. They're part of this heavenly council in this judgment sanctuary picture that John's putting together. But what do they do with their position on the throne? A little bit later on in Revelation chapter 4, they get off the thrones. They take off their crowns. Crowns in John's day were a symbol of deity. They take off those crowns. They get off their thrones. And they worship before the one who is sitting on the throne. There are some members of the heavenly council that are already convinced that God is worthy of worship. The problem is, are we convinced? The problem is, is humanity convinced? And in Revelation's story, humanity doesn't get convinced until the end, Revelation 19, and then the bride's ready for the wedding, and she's convinced, yeah, God is worthy of worship. And then the end comes. So, but here are these 24 elders. Who are they? Well, um, let me just read a quote to you. Uh, turn with me to Revelation chapter 5 briefly. In Revelation 5, <clears throat> John, get ahead of myself too much, John begins to cry in verse 4. And then in Revelation 5, in verse 5, one of the elders tells John to stop crying. And then he gives him an explanation, which we'll come to in a moment. Notice this quotation. This is from the 12th manuscript release, page 296, commenting on this. <clears throat> His soul, John's soul, was wrought up to such a point of agony and suspense that one of the, what did she say? Strong angels. Well, the text says one of the elders. Now, it's important for us to understand that the 24 elders are always involved in heavenly activity. They participate in worship in heaven. They participate in whatever's happening in this part of the story. They're engaged in the heavenly council. They're with the, the four living creatures largely throughout the entire story. They certainly have angelic heavenly qualities. So here's a quotation where instead of saying one of the elders had compassion on him and laying his hand on him surely said, weep not, and then continues quoting from Revelation 5 and verse 5, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed to open the book. Ellen White here calls the being that said this to John a strong angel. Another quotation um, from Signs of the Times, November 22nd, 1905, <clears throat> referring to Revelation chapter 7, where again an elder speaks to John. Ellen White says, The angel answered, These have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb, where in the context it's an elder that says that. So it seems to be that Ellen White's in harmony with the overall thread movement of the book of Revelation, that these 24 elders are some kind of heavenly being. Certainly they're part of the heavenly divine council. Who they are exactly is really less important than what they do. And what they do in the story is they worship. They recognize there is somebody worthy of worship. And it's interesting, we don't have time uh, today by any means, but as we really get into their songs, what they sing as they, as they do worship, they're really connected with this big question in the book of Revelation, who is worthy to sit on the throne? So those are the, hit, the 24 elders. Let's go back to Revelation 
chapter 4. And are you all still with me? Or have I lost you? Go ahead. You have a question? It's a good question. Is there significance in 24? This is the only 24 in the book of Revelation, the 24 elders. Um, in the Old Testament, in the book of Chronicles, there were 24 courses of priests. So maybe there's a reflection there. Um, you know, if an individual wanted to argue that these represent redeemed from the earth, they could say they represent, you know, from the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 disciples, and that's why there's 24. Uh, but again, there's not a real clear definitive statement on that. But it's a good observation because it's the only 24 in the book of Revelation, and numbers are really important in Revelation. So we go to the next character group in Revelation chapter 4. <clears throat> and that is starting in verse 6. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal, and in the center... And around the throne, our new group of characters, who are they? Four living creatures, full of eyes, yes, full of eyes in front and behind. And then they are described. One has a, like a lion, one's like a calf, one like the face of a man, one like a flying eagle. Verse 8, and the four living creatures, each one of them have six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night... They do not cease to say, then he goes on and they <clears throat> sing a song, which we'll come back to a little bit later. But if we look at this, this character group, four living creatures, <clears throat> um, <clears throat> I think the King James says four beasts, if I'm not correct. Living creatures is a better translation than, than beasts for sure. And so who are they? Well, we think of the, the beings. Um, there's certainly a lot of connections to the Old Testament, to the book of Isaiah, where Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah sees seraphim around the throne. And in fact, in Isaiah chapter 6, let's do Let's go to Isaiah chapter 6. I have some. Thank you. Thank you so much. Isaiah chapter 6. This is the predominant source that John connects with. In verse 2, they're called seraphim. They've got six wings. They fly. In verse 3, this will be important for later on. Remember this verse, Revelation 6, excuse me, Isaiah 6, 3. And they cry to one another, what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So here's this image, these living beings. Let's turn with me to the book of Ezekiel. Quickly, let's go to the book of Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 1, John also sees, excuse me, Ezekiel sees living creatures. But in verse 10, excuse me, chapter 10, he describes these living creatures. Ezekiel 10 in verse 20 and 21. And he describes this, these, these living creatures as what? Not seraphim, but... Ezekiel 10, as cherubim. So maybe we have just two different Hebrew names for the same group of angelic beings. Maybe they're different angelic beings. Suppose when we get to heaven, we'll find that out. Exactly who they are, they are heavenly beings for sure. 
What's really significant is twofold. One is the description of their eyes and what they do. They are twice, John says, full of eyes around and within. They are paying attention. What are they paying attention to? Well, what's their focus of attention? God. I mean, they're around the throne. And they're in the center of the throne. They're, the Greek is a very hard construction in the midst and around. And they're right there. They are watching everything that God does in the heavenly council. I mean, the book of Revelation is a revealing, isn't it? It's an unfolding. It's an opening of what God does. And here you have these angelic beings. They're full of eyes. They're watching. They want to see how God is going to handle the accusations of Satan and the controversy. <clears throat> Interestingly enough, um, there's a quotation in Story of Redemption I came across. It says, Four heavenly angels always accompanied the ark in all its journeyings. Isn't that interesting? Wherever the ark went, there were four angelic beings with it. Are these four living creatures? Are they emblematic of that? Are they emblematic of the entire heavenly host? Good questions. The, what is clear is that they're watching everything the one on the throne does. Because we know that Satan has begun to undermine the things that God does and has planted doubt. And so they're there. They're watching. They sing. They worship before and around the throne. So there's another major character actor in this two-folded story, chapter 4 and 5, and that's the lamb, but we'll, we'll get to that later on as we continue as well. So the main... It's the right word I can use. I would say actors, but I don't want you to think Hollywood. Um, players, you know, participants. The main participants in the drama is the one sitting on the throne. The 24 elders around the throne. The four living creatures. Another main player will be the lamb. We'll come to that. And of course, there's all these other angels that will come to us. But these are the main players in the drama. So now let's ask the question, what's happening in the story? We've seen the scene. We've, we've been transported from earth to heaven. We see the throne. That's our object of attention. The one sitting on the throne is, is really primary. There's some kind of worship taking place. That is very clear to us. But what's really happening in the story at large? Let's go to chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Chapter 5, if you want to look at it closely, is really broken into four sections. Each one, each section starts with the words, and I saw, depending on your translation. So chapter 5 and verse 1, verse 2, verse 6, and verse 11 are the little subsections in Revelation chapter 5. And each one of those, pardon me, each one of those verses start with the same words, and I saw. So verse 5, chapter 5 rather, verse 1. <clears throat> I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne. There's that phrase again. A book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. So he sees this book, this scroll. Well, what is it? We'll come back to that. It's got writing on the back and the inside, and it's sealed up. 
you know, things can be sealed in different ways. We think back to the book of Isaiah, there's a scroll that's sealed, and some people say, well, I can't understand it because I can't read. Other people say, well, I can't understand it because it's sealed. There can be ambiguity about an item, and yet the activity still be known as we'll see as we go through. Verse 2, and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice. Really, wouldn't it be really thrilling to like go through Revelation like in a worship service? I saw another angel proclaiming with a loud voice, and then somebody who's got a deep, booming voice, like a thunder, stands up and says, nobody has that deep, booming voice? You know, who is worthy to open the book and break its seal? This cry echoes throughout the universe. This isn't just some, oh, who's worthy to open the book? This appeal reverberates throughout the universe. Well, how do I know that? Verse 3. And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly. And just deep sorrow, weeping, agonizing, crying. Because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And then the story goes on, verse 5, and continues. But we, here's a crisis point in the story. We're kind of reading through this. Well, what's going on? We have this heavenly scene. We have the throne. And all of a sudden, there's this angel. There's a member of the divine council. And he speaks with this loud voice that reverberates throughout the entire universe. Who's worthy to open this book? This book must be very important. And nobody's worthy. Heaven, earth, under the earth. Nobody is worthy. And then John just breaks down. And he's crying and crying and crying over this. So what's taking place? <clears throat> what is the question before the heavenly council? What's the question? Who is what? Worthy. Who's worthy? Who's worthy? That's interesting. The word worthy um, applies, is found seven times in the book of Revelation. It's found in chapter 3 where it says, You will walk with me in white because you are worthy. It's found in chapter 16. Those that follow Babylon will drink the blood of the saints because they are worthy. And the other five times is found in these two chapters. And it has to do with God's worthiness to be on the throne. Who's worthy? Who's worthy to open this scroll? <clears throat> why is this book so important? Um, why is it so hard to find somebody that's worthy? And questions that we could ask this text. Before we answer them, I want to kind of step back I can little bit, and, and try to draw our attention to some more details in the story. I said earlier that, that the entire book of Revelation is written in a masterful way. Um, you know, if, however you want to conceive of how the book of Revelation came together, I can tell you how I conceive of it. You know, John saw the visions on the Isle of Patmos, clearly. He saw them. He heard them. But then he went and he sat down and he thought, okay, well, how am I going to express this? And he starts writing. And he begins to think about how he's going to put things down. And he's thinking Old Testament, these incredible wealth of the Old Testament in his mind, the images that he saw, he connects them with Old Testament verses. And he just weaves this incredible tapestry for us. 
which is not revealed the first time you read Revelation. But the more you reread it, the more you see. So I want to share some things. Um, and let's you know, kind of step back and I'm going to ask the question again, who is sitting where? God's title was the one that is sitting on the throne. So we remember Revelation 4, we just read it moments ago. John was in the spirit, and he was taken up, and he saw the one on the throne, and the one on the throne had a, um, was like Jasper and like Sardis, and there was an emerald rainbow around the throne, which is full of comfort for us, that emerald rainbow. Um, let me interrupt myself if I can. I want to read something to you. That might be encouraging for somebody someplace. <clears throat> You're just going to do a search for a rainbow of promise. There are just so many beautiful promises. Are you filled with sorrow today? Fasten your eyes on the sun of righteousness. Do not try to adjust all the difficulties, but turn your face to the light, to the throne of God. What will you see there? The rainbow of the covenant. The, beneath it is the mercy seat, seat. Faith is what you need. You know, you're having a hard time. You have difficulties. You have trials. Don't try to adjust everything. Look at the rainbow around the throne. Thrones contested territory, but there still is somebody sitting on it. And he ultimately wins. Amen? We know the end of the story. That's why I like it so much. <clears throat> um, Encircling the throne of God is the rainbow of the covenant, a symbol of the pledged word of God, that he will receive every sinner who gives up all hope of eternal life on ground of his own righteousness and accepts the righteousness of the world's redeemer. See that rainbow? Give up on yourself in terms of, I'm going to merit this somehow, and depend completely on the righteousness of, of Jesus Christ, of the redeemer. Believing that Christ is his personal savior, <clears throat> able to save him from falling. So there's a lot of beautiful promises about the rainbow. So in chapter 4, uh, we see he, John's in the spirit. He's taken away. He sees one sitting on the throne. He sees jewels, uh, Sardis and Jasper. He sees the rainbow. There's another place in Revelation where there's something very similar. Except there's somebody else sitting as a ruler. So let's look here. So Revelation 4, verses 1 through 3, but let's turn to Revelation chapter 17, verses 1 through 4. Revelation 17, <clears throat> verses 1 through 4. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here. I will show you the judgment of the great harlot, who does what? who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality. And those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. Verse 3, I was carried away, how? In the spirit. Revelation 4.1, in the spirit. John's taken away. Um, <clears throat> carried in the spirit into the wilderness. Revelation 4, he sees one sitting on the throne. In Revelation 17, in verse 3, he sees one sitting on the scarlet-colored beast. Who's sitting where? Now, this same woman, Babylon, Revelation 18, in verse 7, she says, I sit as a queen. 
no one takes my place. So John, again, however you want to understand this, whether John decided to communicate this way or this was part of his visionary experience, both places, the spirit's involved, both places, he's taken away, both places, there are jewels. In Revelation 4, there's the jasper, the sardis, the emerald. In Revelation 17, there's the gold and the other jewels. And in both places, his attention is focused to one who is sitting. The throne in Revelation is contested territory. There is somebody else that wants to rule. Really, the question for us is, who's going to rule in our hearts? Who are we really going to put on the throne? <clears throat> Let's look at another <clears throat> parallel. I mentioned earlier also that Revelation 4 and 5, pardon me, Revelation 4 and 5 is a literary diptych, a two-paneled picture, if you will. Well, there's another one, another two-paneled picture in the book of Revelation where two chapters match up together. That's chapters 12 and 13. In fact, as I hope you'll see in a minute, Revelation 4 and 5 have distinct literary parallels with Revelation 12 and 13. They are mirror opposites, if you will. You have Revelation 4 and 5, and we'll look at some of the details, and then we'll look at, at 12 and 13. So let's look. This is... Um, Let's kind of go through this. In Revelation 4 and 5, you have a threefold union. What do I mean by that? You have the one sitting on the throne. You have the lamb. We haven't gotten to yet, Revelation 5, 6. And you have the seven spirits of God. In common terms, you have the Father, you have the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Threefold union. The one sitting on the throne, the lamb, and the sevenfold spirit. In Revelation chapter 5, there is one that is slain. That's the lamb. Ultimately, in Revelation chapter 5, the lamb receives great acclamation. The lamb is connected with the one sitting on the throne, is connected with the throne. He comes to the throne. He is in the midst of the throne, as we'll see in a moment. He receives a hymn sung to the Lamb as well in Revelation chapter 5. Actually, both the Father, the one sitting on the throne and the Lamb receive that hymn. Revelation 5, 12 through 13. So this is you know, kind of a summary of the details of this passage. What's totally astounding as we look closely in Revelation is that each one of these has a counterfeit in chapter 12 and 13. That just as there's a threefold union in chapters 4 and 5, there's a threefold union in chapters 12 and 13. Who are those three actors, players, characters? Well, there's the dragon who goes to get his first associate, which is the beast that comes up out of the sea. And then he gets a second associate, which is the the beast that comes out of the land. Now again, <clears throat> don't misunderstand me. There are definite historic prophetic connections we could make. But let's not lose the bigger picture of the story that John is trying to tell us. Here in chapters 4 and 5, you have the 3. Chapter 12 and 13, you have the 3. In chapter 13 and verse 3, there is one slain. 
just like there is in chapter 5. The beast had a deadly wound. It's put to death. It's actually the exact same Greek word talking about the lamb who has a wound, but he comes to life. Um, in chapter 13, in verse 13, the, the, the second player in the, in the drama receives great acclaim, just like the lamb does in chapter 5. The beast receives permission to sit on the throne of the dragon, just as the lamb is connected with the throne of his father. And in Revelation 13.3, there's a hymn sung to the beast, just like there's a hymn sung to the lamb. Coincidence? Or is John trying to draw our attention to something? It's not just the end of Revelation that's talking about the great controversy. It's the whole book. And as we read through it and read through it and go over again, we, we begin to see these connections. Who's sitting on the throne? Is it God or is it Babylon? Who are we really going to worship? Who are we going to give um, <clears throat> our allegiance to? And so we see this connection between these two chapters. Uh, let's go back to Revelation chapter 4. I want to draw out one more parallel here as we do this. Revelation 4 in verse 8. Let's go back to Revelation 4, verse 8. The four living creatures, they're around the throne. And we already looked, we noticed that these four living creatures have connections to the book of Ezekiel, connections to the book of Isaiah, particularly in the book of Isaiah. And we read that, that in, in Isaiah's vision, he sees the throne. And he sees these living creatures around the throne. And in Isaiah chapter 6, what is it in verse 3, they sing a song as well. What do they sing back in Isaiah? Do you remember? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Did you forget it already? I told you you should remember it. Isaiah chapter 6. What? A little louder? The whole, the whole earth is filled with his glory. That phrase from the book of Isaiah is quoted numerous times by Jewish writers, you know, non-canonical, non-biblical Jewish writers in John's day, before in John's day. It was well-known, well-quoted all over the place. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The whole earth is filled with his glory. So here in Revelation chapter 4 in verse 8, we see these four living beings. They have these wings. They're full of eyes. Day and night, they do not cease to say what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. What else? The Almighty. Huh, was and is, actually, yeah, was and is, who was and who is and is to come. Something's wrong. Well, maybe not wrong, but something's different. Why is it different? Well, let's think about the story of Revelation for a little bit. When does the earth become full of God's glory in the story of Revelation? Revelation 18, the mighty angel comes down, lightning the earth with glory. Revelation chapter 21, the holy city is filled with the glory of God. But in this context, the earth is not yet full of the glory of God. 
according to Revelation's story, because there's a war taking place. How often do these angelic beings sing this song? Day and, day and night, right? Revelation 12 and verse 10, there's somebody else that says things day and night. Revelation 12, 10. Somebody else saying things day and night. Who's that? It's the accuser, Satan. He accuses God's people day and night. So we, we, we begin to read this and we see all the connections. You know, the throne and who's sitting on the throne and the parallels between chapter 4 and 5 and chapter 12 and 13. And the song, people are singing, you know, holy, 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 but who is and was, who is to come. There's someone else who kind of is and was and goes into a bottomless pit. Chapter 17. But the earth is not yet full of God's glory. And the angelic beings, the four living creatures, they do this day and night because Satan is accusing God day and night. What is one of the accusations? Let's go to chapter 6 quickly. <clears throat> chapter 6. Under the breaking of the fifth seal, the... Um, when the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God. Chapter 6, verse 9. And because of the testimony which they maintained. Verse 10. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true? New American Standard accurately translates the underlying Greek. How long will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood. The point here is this. The people under the altar, whoever these individuals are, these martyred beings, images of them at least, they're crying out, how long until God you do something? Why are you letting evil triumph? Notice. What does he say? How long, O Lord? What's the first word? Holy and true. There's a question of God's holiness in the book of Revelation. God, you're holy, but how come you're not acting? Well, later on in Revelation, Revelation 15, they do sing, you know, just and true are your ways, holy are you, because finally you're doing something. Part of the great controversy is this question, why is there so much freedom in the universe? Why did God, why do you just let all this happen? So that's, as John Pauline calls it, the undercurrent in the book of Revelation. You know, there's the surface reading of it, if you want, but then there's another, there's, there's the story that John's trying to tell. It's the story of the great controversy. So let's, let's go back to Revelation chapter 5 and kind of look at these questions. You know, what is happening in the heavenly council? What is this question? Why is this book so important? Why is it so hard to find one worthy? And we're going to see that God's worthiness stands or falls with finding someone that can open the book. That's why John's so full of angst and he's crying. God's worthiness is connected with finding someone able to open the book. Is there someone that can do that? Well, first, let's kind of ask the question, um, what is this sealed book? Here's a couple of Bible verses. You can jot them down. Isaiah 29, 11 and 12. It's an Old Testament passage where a book's sealed and someone can't read it because they don't know how to read and someone can't read it because it's sealed. 
Daniel 12, verses 9 through 12, we know that portion of the book of Daniel was sealed, right? And Daniel received it. He knew what it, pardon me, he knew what it said. But what was Daniel's problem? He didn't understand it. You know, it's a problem of understanding. It's a problem of comprehension. It's, it's a problem of what is taking place. So something can be sealed. We can still know what the words are. You think of Daniel chapter 5. You know, they could read many, many Tekel Farsin. They could read it. But what did it mean? And the whole book of Revelation is a disclosing. It's a disclosure of God's fitness to rule the universe. And how does God make that clear? The book of Ezekiel, chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 Ezekiel describes a book filled with lamentations and woe and sorrows. And this book in the hand of the one on the throne is also written inside and outside. In the book Christ Object Lessons, page 294, Ellen Mike makes an important comment about this. She talks about decisions that had been made that are recorded in this sealed scroll that will be opened in the time of judgment. So this sealed book somehow is connected with ultimate judgment, destinies, histories, what God has done in the past, um, connected with decisions that will be made in the judgment. So the question, is God really fit to rule? Let's go to Revelation chapter 5, starting in verse 5 again, and then 6. As John's crying, he's weeping tensely, cry. It's amazing how John just enters into the story. I mean, he sees it all, but he's also in it as well. One of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome, has prevailed, has overcome, so as to open the book and its seven seals. The lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, to Old Testament messianic military images of one fit to rule. Lion comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 49, talking about Judah. Here's a scepter shall not depart from Judah. Um, so here's a, a, a ruling imagery, the root of David, Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 11, talking about the king that's going to come. These are ruling images. Again, here is someone that is ready to rule. Verse 6. And I saw in the midst of the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, symbol of power, symbol of knowledge, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. This military authority ruling image is interpreted or reinterpreted or turned upside down on its head as John has two very jarring juxtaposed two images juxtaposed ah, forget the word just just positioned against one another you know when you get a word wrong and then you're afraid you're going to say it wrong and then it just gets worse and worse and worse two images opposite What's he trying to tell us? The way God rules the universe is through self-sacrifice. How does God rule? Is God fit to rule? Is God really worthy of ruling? John turns things upside down. 
he takes the word power in the book of Revelation. I don't have time to go into it, but if you trace the word power, the lamb receives power. The one on the throne receives power. The beast receives power. The dragon receives power. He gives power. But John reinterprets power for us. Power isn't authority and might and you do it my way. Power is self-sacrifice in the book of Revelation. And so here's this one that really is fit to rule and it's a slain lamb. There are lots of Bible images. You know, there's the Passover lamb. There's the lamb from Isaiah chapter 53. There's sanctuary imagery of the lamb. Um, there's, there's the resistance to evil brought out in the image of the lamb. So many images rolled into one. But, you know, for our purposes this afternoon, the reason John focuses on this uplifted lamb is because this is where we see that God is really worthy to rule. And the crisis before the heavenly universe is, who's going to open the book? Who's worthy? Well, here's somebody that's worthy. And he's worthy simply because he was slain. Let's go on a little bit further here. Revelation chapter 5, verse 7. He came and he took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, don't have time for that. But who are they falling down for? Before their lamb. They're worshiping the lamb. The book of Revelation. Very important point for us in day and age where people question whether Jesus Christ is really worthy of worship. The book of Revelation makes it abundantly clear. Each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Verse 9, and they sing, excuse me, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. Why? Number one, you were slain. Number two, you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Number three, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will what? Reign. They're going to sit on thrones. They're part of God's associates. And they've been redeemed. Now, they're the kings of the earth. They're the associates of the beast. They're the associates of the dragon. It's all part of the great controversy imagery. But this one is worthy because he was slain, because he purchased, rescued, because he formed a kingdom of priests. There's a controversy taking place. There's a crisis taking place in heaven. And that crisis is resolved by the slain lamb. I'd like to share some quotations with you <clears throat> that for me are really heartwarming. From Desire of Ages, page 37. And what I want you to see here, I said earlier that the, the question, the issue, before the heavenly council, the setting, this courtroom, throne room, um, judgment scene of Revelation 4 and 5, the question before the divine council that's there, which is able to ask God questions, think of Job chapter 1 and 2 in different places, the question there is, God, why are you giving so much freedom to these rebels? God, how come you are not doing something? God, why don't you act? Notice these quotations in the writings of Ellen White. Desire of Ages, page 37. With intense interest, the unfallen worlds watch to see Jehovah arise and sweep away the inhabitants of the earth. 
This was right before the Incarnation. The world was brought down to a tremendous low. And what did the Heavenly Council look to see? Get up, God, and do something. If God should do this, Satan was ready to carry out his plan for securing to himself the allegiance of heavenly beings. The quote goes on. He was ready to spread rebellion. And then he would cast the blame on God. Continuing, Josiah just 37. <clears throat> At the very crisis when Satan seemed about to triumph, the Son of God came with the embassage of divine grace. The deity was glorified by pouring upon the world a flood of healing grace that was never to be obstructed or withdrawn till the plan of salvation should be fulfilled. <coughs> What's happening? Heavenly council's ready. God, get up and destroy them. What does God do? Sends a son. Sends the lamb. This is how I rule. And he pours upon this world this flood of healing grace that is never to be obstructed until the end. It's still here. And when we look at the world and we see why is this happening, why is what taking place in Ukraine and in Gaza and in Grand Rapids and in my own life, why are all these things happening? Well, God's still acting. And he's trying to draw us through the cords of his love. Review and Herald, July 17, 1900, paragraph 5. A crisis had arrived in the government of God. The earth was filled with transgression. The heavenly intelligences, that's the divine counsel again, were prepared for a manifestation of divine power. Every move was watched with intense anxiety. The exercise of justice was expected. Even the heavenly beings are just waiting for this to take place. A similar quotation, different reference, Signs of the Times, August 27th, 1902. All heaven waited the bidding of the commander to pour out the vials of wrath. One word from him, one sign, and the world would have been destroyed. The unfallen worlds would have said, Amen. You get it? Have you ever wondered, God, why don't you just destroy everything? My wife and I have these conversations. Well, he could have destroyed everything, and then nobody would even know. It's true. But that's not who God is. Well, it's not who God is. Well, if he destroyed everybody, it would have dissolved that problem. <laughs> okay. Bigger question is, how does God want to handle the crisis. The heavenly beings would have said, Amen, you're righteous, because you have exterminated rebellion. But God doesn't. What does he do? He sends his son. God might have sent his son to condemn, but he sent him to save. No words can describe the effect of this movement on the heavenly angels. With wonder and admiration, they could only exclaim, Here in is love. And the crisis is not only due for what's happening here on earth, but of course the unfallen worlds, all the worlds that God had created, would be affected by how this conflict was played out. So what have we seen? You turn to Revelation 4 and 5, 
see a throne. Throne in the book of Revelation is what? Contested territory. God has a throne. His associates have a throne. Satan has a throne. His associates have a throne. Question is, who is really worthy to rule? There's a heavenly council meeting. And the undercurrent, the, the, the connections within the book of Revelation itself point us to the great controversy. God sits on a throne. There's the beast. There's the, har excuse me, the harlot sitting on the beast. And she sits as a queen. Holy, holy, holy. The earth is not yet full of your glory, but one day it will be. There's a question that echoes throughout the heavenly universe to the divine council. Who's worthy? The answer, nobody, except the uplifted lamb. And then the 24 elders and the living creatures, they sing this song. Let's continue. Let's go back to Revelation chapter 5 and verses 11 and read through the end of this. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands. Oh, I wish I could hear it. Sing with a loud voice. Notice one loud voice. They're in perfect harmony and in unison. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive, what's the first thing? Power. He's reinterpreted power for us in the book of Revelation. Riches, interesting study, find out where else that's used in the book of Revelation. Wisdom, might, honor, and glory, and blessing. But it's not just enough for the angelic beings to, to sing it. Verse 13, and every created thing which is in heaven, and on the earth, and under the earth, and on the sea, and all things in them, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, as in Handel's chorus, Amen. They kept saying, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped. That should be our posture before the uplifted Lamb need to realize that there's nothing in us that's going to get us to be part of that group. That, as we read earlier, that rainbow around the throne should cause us to turn away from every you know, particle of self-exaltation and just fall down before the uplifted lamb, who shows us what it's like for God to rule. The crucified Christ shows us how God rules in this world that he rules through self-sacrifice, that he rules through uh, surrender. And that is where real power is. In the book of Revelation, the lamb is the, is the example of how God rules, but he's also our example as well. We're to follow the lamb wherever he goes. We're to learn to exercise power the way he exercises power, with openness and fairness and justice and clarity willingness to be made manifest before others. So, Revelation 4 and 5, book of Revelation, from the great controversy perspective. Prophetic information there, unquestionably. There's personal information there, without any doubt. But the big story of Revelation is that there's somebody that's questioning whether God's really worthy of worship. And God is revealed as the one that is worthy of worship, through the uplifted lamb. Let's pray together, and then if anyone has any questions, we can take some. 
Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity. We pray that you do a miracle in our hearts and take away or help us turn away from the distractions of this world and focus more on the crucified Christ, who is the clearest revelation of what you're like, the clearest picture of how your government operates. May we, Father, one day join in this tremendous song. Worthy is the one sitting on the throne, and worthy is the Lamb. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.